Well, good morning to all of you, and uh, it's good to be back again. And uh, I'd like to welcome our guest, Mel P. Uh, she's originally from Cebu, and uh, yeah, so and, uh, she's a friend of uh, the Aguza's family. And welcome you again, and welcome to you, and I uh, hope that uh, you, you will have a, a great time here and find encouragement, and look forward to seeing you again. Yep. I, we had a nice chat earlier. That's good, that's good. Okay, well, this morning, what I'm going to do is that uh, I want to... Uh, Take on what Brother Manny has uh, spoken last Sunday concerning the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, Manny's sermons always in- inspire me to think. Uh, so I thought that, okay, I, I'm going to do something. And, and I said to him that, uh, you know, like what uh, Kylie Minot once sang, that can't get you out of my mind. You know, so I had that genealogy in my mind all, uh, for the whole week. And I thought that I just want to do something about it. I, I came out this lesson. I hope that this will be an encouragement to you. So we're going to look at uh, our Lord's physical genealogy, so his family line history, which is very interesting here. Uh, if, you have, uh, if you have your notes, you can read, read through your notes. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to read uh, very quickly through Matthew 1 verse 1 on, and look at the genealogy list. The Bible says this concerning our Lord's genealogy, his family line there. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Paris and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar begot Hezron and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Abinadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Abed by Ruth. Abed begot Jess and Jess begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, Abijah begot Asa, Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot, begot Joram, Joram begot Uzziah, Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, Ahaz begot Hezekiah, Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Amon, and Amon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after this, they were brought to Babylon Jeconiah begot Shetel, Shetel begot Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel begot Abiob. Abiob begot Eliakim, Eliakim begot Azor, Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Elud. Elud begot Eliezer, Eliezer begot Bathan, Bathan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, was called, who is called Christ. So all the generations of, from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David until the captivity in Babylon. 14 generations and from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are uh, 14 generations. Phew. Uh, names are quite difficult to read, isn't it? Uh, yeah, so what I want to do this morning, as we look at this, when you look at the genealogy itself, it's very interesting. There are lots of names there. You know, some of you, you might, you, you might find them, the names familiar because I've done a series of the studies of the kings of Israel and Judah. So you see some of the names appearing uh, familiar to you. And while others may be a bit uh, strange to you as well, it, it doesn't matter. But I think that genealogies are always very interesting. You know, it provides a family tree of uh, where 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 he came from and Jesus, where Jesus came from. And you can draw many lessons from genealogies. And I thought that I want to share you just four lessons this morning, which we will look at it uh, shortly. So, for the purpose of this morning's sermon, what I'd like us to do is to spend some time on Matthew's expression of uh, Jesus himself in verse 1 of Matthew 1, where he called Jesus the son of David. If you notice, the son of David was first on the, on, 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 on the, on, on the line itself. After, immediately after the name Jesus Christ, the son of David. So I'd like us to focus on that itself. But as a matter of background, genealogies are 
important, you see, especially for the Jews. That, well, the reason why that Matthew has done the genealogy of Jesus here in his gospel account is because the Jews, you know, they, they were really concerned about genealogies. You see, where it shows where they came from. And uh, we know that Matthew's gospel was aimed at the Jewish readers. And that's why that Matthew has gone through such a, you know, a, a long list of names by, by trying to establish uh, you know, the fact that Jesus was the son of David. So when Matthew makes this claim that Jesus is the son of David, based on the genealogy record itself, he was making two important claims. Number one, that Jesus was of the direct royal lineage. Yeah? That means that Jesus came from the royal lineage of the house of David. That's, that's why you see that he called Jesus the son of David. This is the number, number one, you see? And secondly, is that being the son of David, who is a direct descendant of David, that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. So that is the, the second point that the, or the genealogy uh, presents as matters of you know, indisputable facts uh, for the Jewish readers there. So now we have established the fact that Jesus is of the royal lineage, and he is the son of David. He came straight from the line of David to the line of the kings of, of, of Judah. And the, the point is this, is it? because being the royal line, coming from the royal line, implies that Jesus is kingly. Yeah, he has got the, 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 you know, the, 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 uh, the, the heritage of the kings. So there is a kingly Jesus, and that, that implies that Jesus is a king. And this is basically, basically uh, you know, prophesied in the Old Testament itself, uh, considering from David. Uh, in 2 Samuel 7, verses, tw verses 12 to 13, this is what the Lord, the Lord said uh, to David. Uh, this was towards the end of, you know, near to the end of David's life, that he, where he said, uh, not, not the end of, uh, it's almost at the end, yes. Uh, at the end of, not really, what am I talking about here? It's uh, somewhere in, in, the, in, the, in the middle of David's life, where the scripture says this. Samuel, 2 Samuel 7, 12. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So this was actually a vision of the Lord to Nathan, where Nathan would relay it to David. You know, because David wanted to build the temple after he started his kingdom. So the Lord said, no, 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 you don't build the temple for me. Your son, after you, will build the temple for me, yeah, the house for me. And the, the Lord said something very interesting there. He said that David's house would reign on the throne forever. You know, there is, in other words, that the son of David, that this, 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 this has got spiritual connotations to it as well. That means that what, he, what the Lord is saying is that the son of David, the Messiah, one day will reign spiritually in the eternal kingdom which the house of David would, 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 uh, would be on, on the throne forever. And this is a prophecy basically so that uh, it has got double meaning. Yes, it has a reference to Solomon. It has also a reference to Jesus. And we know that this is the case because in Isaiah 9, uh, verses 9 down to verse, verses 6 to 7, this is what Isaiah said concerning the Messiah. Uh, verse 6 says that For unto us a child is born Unto us a son is given And the government will be upon his shoulder 
and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then Isaiah continued that he says that of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. It's going to go on. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. So Isaiah prophesied, you see, that on the house of, from the house of David, there will come a child born, a son, who will sit on the throne forever. So there is this Old Testament talk about Jesus being one day the Messiah who's going to come and he's going to reign on the, on the throne of David forever. It, it coincides, it agrees with what Nathan's vision uh, said there earlier in 2 Samuel 7. So when, this, when, this, when, the new, when it comes to the New Testament times, the New Testament confirms to, for us that this prophecy has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that's why that Matthew's genealogy begins with Jesus Christ, the son of David. You see? So it points to the fact that Jesus is the son of David. And this, this, is, this is going to continue, that the New Testament continues to tell us that Jesus Christ will sit on the throne as king. And this is where the, the, the fulfillment of the prophecy was being mentioned in, by Luke. In Luke 1, verse 32, where the, the scripture says this, and he, he will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. You see? So all these passages point to the fulfillment that Jesus Christ, the son of David, will, become, will be the Messiah to sit on the throne of David forever. And the fulfillment is, has been seen in, in, in Luke 1 itself. And this is only one of the several New Testament passages that talks about uh, Jesus being the Messiah. But what about the Jews? How did the Jews see uh, the Messiah? So in Matthew 21, you, we, we find the Jews telling us how, how they would identify the, their Messiah. In Matthew 21 verse 9, the scripture says this, Then the multitudes who went before and those who cr followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Is it? Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who come in the, comes in the name of the, of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So here you are. You see that the crowd were cheering on Jesus as Jesus was entering to, you know, into Jerusalem, sitting on the back of a donkey. Yeah? They called him the son of David. Just like the genealogy. Isn't it? The genealogy begins with the son of David. So here you are, the Jews knew that the Messiah would be called the son of David. Matthew's genealogy said Jesus is the son of David. So therefore you can see the, 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 you know, how it coincides. The prophecies spoke of the son of David. The fulfillment spoke of the son of David. The people spoke of the son of David. When Jesus had a conversation with the religious leaders of the Jews about the Messiah, this was the question that Jesus asked and their answer. That was in Matthew 22, verse 42. Jesus asked them this question. What do you think about the Christ? The Christ is the Messiah. Whose son is he? And the scripture says, they said to him, the son of David. So here we are. We can see that the evidence in the scripture shows us 
that the Jews evidently understood that the Messiah would come from the house of David, direct from his line, and he would be called the son of David. I hope you can see the, the connection there. Why did Matthew you know, called Jesus the son of David on the genealogy? That is a, 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 a very big indication, you see, that Jesus is the Messiah. There is no doubt about that. But of course, that the, the Jews had a different perception and understanding of their Messiah. You see, God's plan for the Messiah was not to come to establish an earthly kingdom. You know, that was what the Jews were thinking of, really. Our Messiah, the son of David, is going to come, sit on the house of David, the throne of David, and kick all the Romans out. You see, and we will have our land, you know, the land of Canaan back again. So that was how they looked at it. But that was not God's plan. God's plan is that the son of David, the Messiah, would come, but he will not reign on the earth. His reign is going to be spiritual. His kingdom is going to be heavenly and eternal, as opposed to any physical kingdom, uh, as we've seen in, in the pages of history. And this spiritual aspect of the eternal kingdom has been prophesied in the Old Testament, which we have seen earlier, and has found fulfillment in the New Testament. For example, in Hebrews 1, you know, the writer of the Hebrews, speaking of Jesus, quoting it in, in the sense of a fulfillment there of the prophecy, he said in Hebrews 1, 8, but to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. So the reign, God's reign, according to God's scheme, Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of David, was to sit on the throne of the heavenly kingdom, which is spiritual, and reign eternally. You see? So that was God's plan. The Jews wanted a, a temporal earthly kingdom. But God's plan is spiritual eternal kingdom. And that's why that when Pilate, Pontius Pilate asked Jesus when he was questioned whether he was the king of the Jews. Yeah? And this is what Jesus answered was in John 18 verse 36. Where Jesus said this, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. So Jesus was very clear. Yes, I am the king of the Jews, but not as you think, because my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is heavenly, it's eternal. And I am the son of David, who's going to sit on the eternal throne of the heavenly kingdom, you see, and reign forever. And that's why that when you put all these things together, you see, why that Matthew begins the, the account of the genealogy with the words, Jesus Christ, the son of David. That's the reason why, to establish his messiahship. But also, of course, that since that the phrase, the son of David, is being put on the front, that it shows the prominence of David, how important David was in this genealogy, isn't it? And it also means, you see, that without David in the picture, Jesus could not have been the messiah. And number two is that if Jesus was not from the house of David, direct line from David, he can't be the son of David and can't be the Messiah. So it's very important. David plays a very important role uh, in the genealogy itself. So what I want to do this morning is to approach the genealogy by looking at David. Yeah, let's start with looking at David. 
since he was Jesus is called the son of David. Let's look at David. So David is a very interesting character, as we know, uh, very familiar to many, many of us. I preached a, series of, a whole series of sermons on David uh, years ago, if you remember. And we know that David and our Lord came from the same tribe, because of, naturally, because that he's the son of David, so they, they came from the same tribe, which was the tribe of Judah. So that was the line, the, 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 the Judean line, yeah, from the tribe of G- Judah. How was David's relationship with his family tribe of Judah? This becomes very interesting. For those of you who have sat through my, sat through my sermons before, you know the kind of family uh, relationship with, with, with Judah. David's relationship with his family tribe of Judah was not a very simple one. You know, it's not a simple one. Uh, it, it, all, it all started from the time after his victory over Goliath, the famous story of David and Goliath. So after, this, after his victory over uh, Goliath, uh, you remember that King Saul, who was the king of Israel at the time, you know, he was very jealous of David's achievements. The people shouted, you know, that Saul killed his thousand and David slayed his ten thousands. Uh, so Saul was very upset by that, you know, the accolade given to David. So Saul started to threaten David's life, and we know that Saul had actually attempted to kill David several occasions, forcing David to flee. So he fled for his life. So when you look at the notes, you can see a map uh, I've, I've actually included in the, in, in, in the notes itself. Uh, just give you a brief idea of some of the initial uh, you know, routes that David has uh, in, in his flight from Saul. So from the account, first of all, from the account of, of, the, of the Bible, we know that when David fled for his life from Saul, he was alone. Yeah? So he, he, he went to Ramah, and then from Ramah, he fled to the place called Nob. So he was alone there when he, went, when he was at Nob, because we know the Bible, because, because the Bible tells us in 1 Samuel, 20, 1 Samuel 21, verse 1. And this is where the Bible says, Now David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. Now Ahimelech was afraid when he met David, and said to him, Why are you alone? And no one is with you. So it tells us, you see, David was on his own when he was running for his life. So we know, when you look at the map, you can see uh, Rama from the north, and then it comes down the arrow pointing to Nob. And from Nob, then David continued to, to, to leave Nob, he fled. He went to Gath, which was basically southwest. That was the, in the area where the Philistines were, the enemies of, the, of, of Israel. Again, that when he was at Gath, he was still alone. And we know this because in 1 Samuel 21 again, verse 10, the scripture says, then David arose and fled that day before Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And, then, and the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the, of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Now David took these words to heart and was very af- much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, pretended madness in their hands, scratched the doors of the gate, and let his saliva fall down his be- on his beard. So on this occasion, David fled from Nob. He went to, to Gath, hoping to seek refuge with his enemies. But of course, they didn't really believe him, so he pretended to be mad, to be crazy out of his mind, but hoping that basically that the Philistines would pity him and take him in. But instead, they kicked him out. And that left him with no choice that he, he then left. And then he traveled again that, uh, that was uh, southeast 
towards a place called Adalam, which was a cave, uh, cave, a cave area. So he went and hide in the cave. He went back to Israel, to Adalam. This is where the Bible tells us in 1 Samuel 22, verse 1, where it says, David therefore departed from there, that was from Gath, and escaped to the cave of Adalam. And so, so when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him, and everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. So this account tells us, after the, the Philistines rejected David, so he went to Adalim, and there he, he met up with his family, and with about 400 men with them. All of them were very desperate men and uh, unhappy men, and they all were hiding in the cave of Adalim with David, and he became his leader. So this was the first time, first time you know, that David had companionship since he fled from Ramah on his own. But this time now they were, they were from his family, his father's house plus some other, other men there. And from here, that it, when you read the life of David, you know, you will find that most of his, the times that he was moving around, it will be in the region, where in the region of Israel, which is actually within the tribe of Judah. His movement was always usually around the area. On our map again that you will find, I've circled three places there. The names are called Kelia, Zid and Maon. Okay? So these three places which I've circled on your map, you can see, uh, they were all within the tribe of Judah. That includes the cave of Adalim as well. Adalim was within Ju the, the control of Judah. We know Judah was David's family tribe, isn't it? Yeah? So being within the family tribe area, you would have thought that, well, David should be very safe in there because Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin in the north. You see? But David is now in the south with his family tribe area. So he should be protected by his family. But when you read the story of David around these areas, they will tell you that David was most unsafe. He was most unsafe in those areas within the tribe of Judah. The reason is because his family tribe would over and over again betray him to King Saul. That's why David had several escapes from Saul in those areas within the family tribe. You see? Then eventually what happens as the story goes is that David felt so unsafe in, in, the, in, the, in the area where the, Judah, the, the tribe of Judah was, was in that he had to flee again and he went to Ziklag, which was actually again that he went west, western side, where Ziklag was controlled by the Philistines. And this time now he stayed there for a while, where he was saved from, uh, from, from King Saul. Until, of course, that Saul died. And then David came back, uh, you know, and to, 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 to Israel to become king. But the story is very interesting. That when David first decided to return to Israel, he didn't know where to go. So first of all, he thought that, okay, I'll go to the cities of Judah, because they are my family tribe. So 2 Samuel 2, verse 1, verse, verse 1 said this. So it says, It happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Where, should, where sh shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. 
So Hebron was the place that G, G, uh, G, uh, David went next. After he left Ziklag, he went to, to Hebron. Hebron was not very far from Jerusalem, basically, uh, in the southern side of Jerusalem. It was the, for the very first time when David went, this was after King Saul died. So David's arch enemy died, yeah? So David went to the tribe of Judah at Hebron. And this was the place where the tribe of Judah made him king of the tribe of Judah. He wasn't the king of Israel immediately. He was king of the tribe of Judah. Uh, well, we, we can kind of perhaps understand why that they, the tribe of Judah decided to, to crown him as their king, whilst the rest of Israel rejected him. I think the answer is pretty simple. When you look at the map, you can see that the tribe of Judah is just next to the Philistines. So the enemies always will come across, the Philistines will always come across and trouble and attack Judah. So when King Saul was no longer around, there was no suitable king you know, to sit on the throne of Israel. Remember Jonathan, the son of, son of uh, Saul, died with, with Saul, is it? Jonathan was the most able, uh, the most able uh, king, uh, the next king of Israel, but Jonathan died. So there was no one better than David to sit on the throne. And I think that's why that the tribe of Judah decided to crown him as their king. So that David, the conqueror of Goliath, will be able to protect them from the Philistines. I think that's the reason why that, uh, this, this happened. We, we, know, we know, you see, that uh, what happens after that uh, tells us that Judah, Judah were, was not very happy. They, they, they never supported David. They were forced to accept him as king. We know that. Because later on, in, in David's life, later on when he became the king of Israel, of all Israel, David had a son by the name of Absalom. Absalom was a very nice, handsome-looking, tall, strong young man. So he, he rebelled against David, the king of Israel. He usurped David's throne. David was forced to flee uh, from his son Absalom. You see? And this was very interesting. Uh, the story becomes very interesting. That it shows basically that the David lost the support. Very quickly, he lost the support of, of Israel. You, you might ask why. Why would David lose the support of Israel so quickly when his son was there? I think the answer is quite simple. Because Israel put him as their king simply because they had no better candidate. So when a better, younger, stronger, nicer looking man came along, that's why they say, we'll let him be king. Get David out. We never liked him in the first place. I think that that is one of the indicators itself. And this, 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 this is shown also that in 2 Samuel 19, the story becomes very interesting. Uh, this happened after David's return uh, to Israel when Absalom, his son, lost, you know, he lost in the battle. He wanted to kill his father. And, but David, David sent his, his, uh, his, his army over and then Absalom died in the battle. Then they were forced to get David back as king. And this is where the account comes from, 2 Samuel 19, verse 9. Where it says this now all the people were in a dispute throughout all the tribes of israel saying the king saved us from the hand of our enemies he delivered us from the hand of the philistines and now he has fled from the land because of absalom but absalom whom we anointed over us has died in battle now therefore why do you say nothing about bringing back the king 
So, the, so King David sent to Zadok and Abiathar the priest, saying, Speak to the elders of Judah, saying, Why are you the last to bring the king back to his house, since the words of all Israel come to the king to this very house? You are my brethren, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then are you the last to bring back the king? So it's a very sad account here, you know, that, okay, Absalom, David's son, usurped the throne, kicked his father out, tried to kill his father in the battle. Instead, he got killed. So Israel had no other better candidates as king. The majority decided to bring David back. So David came back. But then the tribe of Judah, his family tribe, they were not amongst the supporters of David. And that's why David said that, why are you the last to come to bring me back? Are you not my family? So this tells us, you see, this tells us the type of relationship between David and his family tribe was not a very good one. Family pride. If you think about this, if you have a, someone within your family who has done something really uh, that you can be proud of, yeah? You know, you will want to identify with the person, isn't it? Now, you know, you want to you identify with this. Yeah, I'm, I'm his family, you know. I, I know him because he's my, he's my uncle or whatever. You, you want to do that. But David, the conqueror of Goliath, he was a hero of Israel. But yet, throughout history, you find that his family tribe of Judah did not seem to like to associate themselves with him. You see? When King Saul was around, causing David trouble, Maybe you can understand, they were afraid that Saul might kill them, so they distanced themselves. But Saul is gone, but yet they never, never seem to attach to David. So it shows you, you see, that David has been walking on very thin ice, as you call, with his family tribe. On this, all, this, all these occasions we have seen on, you know, so far, that something could have happened to David that would end up killing him, isn't it? Him being killed. Because, how his, because of how his family treated him. And had that happened, the history of the house of David would be very different, isn't it? You think about that. But thankfully, that this was not the case. That it shows how God is, you know, working behind the scene, protecting David from all these evil men, uh, you know, and, and, and help him to eventually continue his line, which Jesus became the son of David. But of course, that after David uh, managed to settle himself in, on his throne quite securely as the king of Israel, he had a bit of difficulty as well. You know that, that when you read the story, I'm not going to go on to the story, but the story tells us he had a lot of difficulties eventually which led him to put Solomon on the throne. Solomon was not his firstborn son because the custom of the days, the traditional days, is that the king always put the firstborn on the throne. You see, the firstborn was always the crown prince to the throne. But Solomon was not the firstborn. Neither was he the eldest surviving sons. You see? So as a result of that, David went, went against the traditions to put Solomon on the throne. Uh, people were probably unhappy with that. But uh, that shows the struggle David had. You know, not only with his family, but against the traditions as well of Israel. Uh, and had Solomon not sat on the throne... Jesus would not have become the son of David. Because Solomon, you see that he was, his name was on the list. If he was another son. So things could have happened. 
These things would have happened that ch would change the course of history quite easily. Again, it points to how God works behind the scene. Amazing, you know, when you look at the genealogy and understand some of the historical background to it. Uh, and it is just amazing. Uh, there are, uh, there's another set of information that I thought out of curiosity, that uh, an interest that I want to put, I put it in the notes there as well. That when you look at the list of the kings, uh, there was a king by the name of uh, Jehoram uh, on the list. And then the next king was Uzziah being mentioned. Jehoram, Uzziah, the two names. Uh, when, you look, when you look at it, it, it seems like uh, Jehoram was the father of King Uzziah. Uh, but the, this is not the case. Because in between the two names, there were actually three kings. The, their names were missing from the list on, on the genealogy. They were the, the, they were kings, the king called, the kings called Ahaziah, Joash or Jehoash, and Amaziah. We have studied the life of Ahaziah before and Jehoash before and Amaziah. So there were three kings missing on the genealogy list. I, I've, I've done the list for you there. Uh, you can see on, on the chart itself the genealogy of the kings. I've circled, I draw a circle on it. Then you can see Jehoram on the, on the right, and then you've got Ahaziah, Jehoash, and Amaziah. So these three kings were missing on, from, from, the, from, the, from the genealogy list. Why? I thought that maybe out of interest, I just want to share this information with you as well. Uh, why is it that Matthew has excluded these three kings from the genealogy? But the answer is quite simple. When you look at the, the, the chart itself, you see that king, kings Ahaziah, Jehoash, and Amaziah came from the line of Jehoram. Yeah? And King Jehoram was married to a lady by the name of Atalia. Yeah? You saw that on that list, yeah? Atalia. Atalia was the queen. When you look above Atalia, you'll find that she came from the king of Israel's side, who was King Ahab whose wife was Jezebel. So in other words, Atalia, Atalia's father and mother was Ahab and Jezebel on the Israel side. You see? The, Jeze the, word Jezebel, the name Jezebel, we know Jezebel was very evil. And those of us who have followed through the series of the kings that I've, I've, I've preached on, you remember Ahab was a very evil king as well. So here you are. You have Atalia, who was an evil queen, being married to Jehoram, who was the king of Judah. Together, they produced you know, uh, Ahaziah, their son. And Ahaziah has, has got uh, Jehoash, uh, his son Jehoash, and Jehoash's son was Amaziah, and Amaziah's son was Uzziah. So why was it that Ahaziah, Amaziah, and Jehoash was not that was excluded from the genealogy, genealogy list, the three of them. I think the answer is quite simple. When you follow the chart, you'll see the Hazia, Jehoash, and Amaziah, there was three generations. Son, yeah, the, the, the father, son, grandson. Three generations. Three generations has been excluded from the list. The answer is quite simple. The answer is because Ahab on the Israel side, who was their maternal grandfather, great-grandfather, and great-great-grandfather because Ahab was evil. So Ahab's house, for those of you who study, follow the series again, remember Ahab, Jezebel, they were, they were all destroyed. The entire house of Ahab was destroyed by God because of their evil ways. So when, what you're looking at, when you look at these three kings, they are on the, the in-laws' side, the side of the in-laws, on the Judah side, you see? 
the, the, three, the, three, the three kings there. Three generations. They also were, they were, they have been excluded because they too were destroyed because they were related to the house of Ahab. You see, and this is, this is what God says in the law of Moses. To anybody who is rebellious, if you are rebellious under Moses' law, God said that it will affect you to, from three to four generations. Yeah, you will suffer the consequence of it. Exodus 34, uh, verses 6 to 7. This is what Moses' law said. Now the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and kindness, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Notice what he said. By no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity, Exodus 34, verse 7. Yeah. By no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children, the children, the children's children, you see, to the third and the fourth generation. So Moses' law placed a curse on those who rebel against God and refuse to change. And Moses said that God will curse the person's future generations for the, for the evil ways, down to the fourth generation. So Ahab evil, we know Ahab was destroyed but his sons as you call his grandsons were evil you got uh, Ahaziah was evil Jehoash started well but then he became evil and then Amaziah started well became evil so they, they were evil and therefore they suffered the consequence of the curse of Moses Moses' law and that's why they were, they, they were eventually Removed, they were, they were they have been removed from Matthew's genealogy because they were undeserving to be on the Messiah's lineage list, and also because they came from the house of Ahab. So, with alongside with their maternal grandfather, they were, grandfather they were destroyed, and hence they were removed from that list. So that's the reason why that uh, the, this, these three kings were missing from the uh, from the from the register of the lost genealogy itself. You know, so it's very interesting there. Another interesting point is that when you, when you look at the kings of Judah's side, yeah, on David's side, from David, starting from David, there, there were 20 kings in total. Okay, 20 kings in total. Of the 20 kings, only four were good kings with the star, the star, the star icon on it. There were only four good kings. And then with seven of them, with this circle thing, the, the icon on it, with seven of them starting on starting off well, but then ended up in apostasy. Okay. And then the remaining were were evil. You see? So what it means is out of 20 kings, only four were good. So that means that only 20% of the house of David who were kings were good. The rest were uh, you know were, were evil. 80% were evil. So it, 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 I think that it's, it's interesting you can see that uh, our Lord's genealogy, family line, is not a very nice looking one, isn't it? Not a very nice looking one. You know, and, and, and it's, it's something for us to, 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 to think about. I think many, many talked about that last week as well in, in, in the genealogy studies. So our, our Lord's CV, as you call it, is not a very nice one. But yet, the, you know, God has used them uh, for His glory. 
So what are the lessons we can learn from, from the genealogy? I propose four lessons we can learn. I think that our Lord's genealogy itself, when you look at the genealogy, it tells us a lot more than just the names of his ancestors. When you understand the, the, the historical background behind some of the characters, in particularly G, uh, G, uh, David himself, and then some of the kings, I think that we can, we can highlight some of, the, some of the things that we, can, uh, we have observed there. The genealogy of Christ tells us not just the names of his ancestors, but it also tells us of some of the common experiences that faithful saints would share in this world. Yeah, it, show, it, it, it shows the common experiences of the faithful saints. Firstly, number one, we know that David struggled a lot you know, with his family tribe, with his people, and eventually even struggled to put Solomon on the throne as his heir. He struggled with his family tribe. Those who sang praise, you know, that, that, that David slayed his 10,000, eventually they betrayed they, uh, David. And then when Solomon became king, you see, the, the Solomon experienced a similar kind of uh, uh, you know, events that God actually experienced himself. In the days of Solomon, yeah, we know that Solomon built the temple, the temple, Solomon's temple. And when the, the temple was, was, built, was built, you remember the sermons, isn't it? That the people were praising God at the inauguration of the temple. But the same voices that praised the Lord at the temple eventually ended up praising idolatry. They rejected God eventually. Those who praised God rejected God eventually. Those who praised David rejected David eventually. You see the common experiences. And then down the lines of all the kings of Judah, it was the same thing. That the people of Judah constantly rejected God. Even there were occasions of the good kings where, where Judah praised God, and very shortly they rejected God. So David experienced rejection by his people. David experienced rejection by his family. God shared the same in, in, in the genealogy. God also experienced rejection by his people and by his family, Israel, who were supposed to be his closest and kindest. So by the time the genealogy, the genealogy reached Jesus, the son of David, we find that Jesus also suffered the same experiences like David and God in the genealogy line. When Jesus first started his ministry on earth, he was also rejected by the people, right at the very early stages, by his own people at Nazareth. Remember, Jesus grew up in Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, but grew up in Nazareth. Luke 4 tells us this, you see, Luke 4.24, where Jesus said that no prophet is accepted in his own country. You know, the, the people of Nazareth rejected Jesus. His family town, as you call it, in Nazareth. They even tried to kill Jesus. And that was the first time he, he went up to read the scriptures. You see? When he started his earthly ministry. The people, the people rejected him. But it was just not the people at Nazareth who rejected him. John 7 verse 5 tells us, For even his brothers did not believe in him. So Jesus suffered rejection by his own family. His friends, his family, his, his, his enemies... Like David, his friends, his, his enemies, his friends, his, his people. You can see that, that this is a common experience on the genealogy line suffered by David, by God himself, by Jesus. I thought that this is very interesting. 
But what about us? What about us as Christians? Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.12, he said that yes, and all those who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. Faithful Christians will suffer persecution. And Jesus said in John 15, verse 18, he said that if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. We are family to Jesus, isn't it? So Jesus is saying that you and I, for those of us who want to be faithful to God, you'll suffer the same experience. Like David, like the son of David, like God himself. And Jesus tells us that, yes, this is what you will suffer and this is what the gospel is all about. It will cause problems, especially in the family. The family will give you grief. Jesus tells us in Matthew 10, verse 34, where he said that, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and the man's enemies will be those of his own household. And Jesus continued, he said that, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds life, his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So Jesus has already warned us that the gospel will cause division in the house, especially amongst uh, ungodly family members within the households. It could be your enemy, it could be your spouses, it could be your children, it could be your parents, it could be your relatives, where they will mock you for standing, standing for the truth. They will mock you for being a Christian. They will mock you because of your faith and your work for the Lord. They will tell you that you are wasting your time doing unnecessary work and living an unnecessary life if you want to be a Christian. They will criticize you. In the days of the apostles, Jesus warned his apostles in Luke 21, verse 16, he said that you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. See, family can become one's enemies. What Jesus is saying to his disciples and to us today is that being part of the house of God, you will experience the experiences of David, God himself, and Jesus. And we see it in the apostle's life. And watch out, he says, sometimes your family can become your worst enemies. And these are the times when, uh, you know, that faithful Christians are tempted most to give up their faith. And I'm sure some of you have seen in your own Christian lives, you know, who were, some who were once faithful brethren give up their faith because of their family. I know, I, I know of a preacher in the, uh, who was a missionary uh, from the church, the Lord's church, he was a missionary, I know him as well, American uh, missionary many years back. Uh, he was a missionary to Indonesia. For those of you who know, Indonesia is an Islamic country, isn't it? He was a missionary to preach the gospel in Indonesia and establish quite a number of churches there. You know, that was in the 1980s uh, when I knew him. He married a, eventually he married a Muslim woman, thinking that uh, he could convert her into Christianity. Uh, in the end, several years later, I was told that uh, this gospel preacher became a Muslim himself. So that is the kind of pressure, you know, uh, for, for, for a Christian from, a from the family, from within the family. Uh, it's not easy. It's not easy. 
And it's during these times when, when our families give us problems, put pressure on us and tempt us to forsake the Lord, that we need to turn to our real family. Who are our real family? Jesus tells us, Luke 8, verses, verse 21. Jesus said that, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. So brethren, the church will become your real family when you're in deep trouble. Because faithful brethren will be there to support you and encourage you in your faith. When your family are not supportive. So remember that Jesus tells us, our real family are the faithful brethren who will stand with you to take and thin. That if we want to be, continue to be on the same family line with the son of David himself. And we are indeed uh, of, the, of the line of David. We fall within the genealogy of the son of David. Galatians 3 verse 26 tells us this. That Paul tells us, he said that, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of, us, uh, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, and as according to the promise. So Paul tells us, you see, when you were baptized into Christ, Kira, in a zoo recently, you become part of the genealogy of the son of David, Jesus Christ. You are of the house of God. And that implies that you too also will suffer or experience very similar experience like David, like God, Jesus, the apostles, the prophets, and many other Christians. So don't be surprised, you know, that you will find your friends rejecting you or your, sometimes your family mocking you. Because this is a common experience that the genealogy of Jesus presents to us. So for us, you know, the genealogy teaches us a lot, a lot of things. And one of them is the common experience we, we, we can experience uh, being with, within the, the family of God. There are other three lessons I want to go through very quickly as well that we can learn from the genealogy of Christ. The first one is that our genealogy teaches us something about our past. You know, each of us have a past, have a history. Because we all grew up, we live, we have a history. And many people, you know, they, they live in the past instead of moving on in their lives. The one good example is a man, the, the Apostle Paul himself. We know the Apostle Paul was a man with a very dark history. He persecuted Christians, he persecuted the church. You know, the, although that Paul was a top-notch Jewish rabbi, he was a scholar of Moses' law and the tradition of the fathers. He was very zealous for God to the point that he persecuted the church. But you see that it was his persecution of the church that eventually led him to become the greatest promoters of the gospel. Quite interesting. His past was a persecutor. His present was a promoter of the church. From this itself, we can see how God uses people. God really do, do not care or does not care about our past history. And God can use us to further His cause if only we would leave our past behind, repent of any sins, leave the past behind, and make spiritual progress for Him. Yes, letting go our past of our past is usually one of the hardest things to do. Sometimes we, we find it hard to let go certain things of the past. But God expects us to do that. The Paul in, in, Galatians, uh, in Ephesians 3 tells us this in verse 12, where he says that, Not that I have a, a really, already attained 
or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing, notice, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the price of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul has learned of this. He has learned of, he, he, of his past terrible history when he persecuted the church. He said, I, now I've learned to let it go of my past wrongs. I've learned to forget, forget about them. But that doesn't mean that he was going to t- totally forget about them. When he said that I'm going to forget about those things of the past, what he meant was that I'm, going to, I'm not going to let my past define me now. Yeah? My past should not define my present. You see? And Paul knew, you see, that to truly progress in our Christian walk, we must never let our past history define us as Christians today. We let God define us. You see? Instead that we should never let our past to become our stumbling block in our life today, to hold us back in service, to prevent us from growing spiritually. You see, and this is where the, our past becomes a problem. But Paul was very different in how he dealt with his past. He remembered his past not to cause him you know, uh, grief or to, or to stumble him or stop him from progressing, but he uses his past to become the drivers of his present work. Okay? He let his past to become the drivers of his work. In other words, that he will remember as he looked at his past, he remembered how good God has been to him. God has been good to him that causes him that now I want to press forward. I can see that I had, I had a terrible history, but God has been so good to me that I'm going to press forward for him. And that's what Paul said himself in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, where he says that this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. And then you see what he said, what on, he said on, he said, However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that because of my terrible history I got mercy, that in me first Christ, Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. So Paul is telling us, as I look back to my terrible past, I realize how bad I was, and I also understand how good God is to me. And therefore, I'm going to use this experience of the past to spur me onto it, to make me progress ahead for Christ. Because Christ died for me, even though I was a rebel, a chief rebel amongst sinners. So this is how, I think the, first le- the, th- the second lesson rather, we can learn from our lost genealogy. It should remind us of our past. It should remind us that God doesn't care about our past as long as we turn away from our past wrongs, repent of it, and use our past as the drivers to help us drive forward to serve Him faithfully. That's the second lesson. The third lesson is this. The genealogy of Christ teaches us about our present. So when we look back to our past history of life, think about this. Isn't it the case that sometime, somewhere, and somehow, all of us here, yeah? All of us here, we could have made decisions of our, in our lives in the past or something may have happened to us which would have led us somewhere else 
you think about it. Yeah. I know that because that uh, you know that when when I when when I finished my GCSE in Singapore or the O levels, my plan was basically to go to Malaysia and train to be a chef. Because my uncle, my late uncle had a restaurant there and he was a very good chef, a very popular restaurant. I wanted to go to Malaysia and become a chef. But then I decided not to. I changed my mind. I went to uh, do my A-levels. That was where I met my wife in college. She introduced me to the church. So you can see this, this house, how a, a decision in our life could have brought us somewhere else. Had I ended up cooking <laughs> in Malaysia, I wouldn't be standing here with you today. So if you think about yourself, would I have made some decisions in my life that I could have been somewhere else? Yeah, the answer is yes. But we are blessed, you see, but we are blessed today. Listen, we are blessed today to be Christians. In the Lord's church, you know, the one true church of Christ with the faithful and sound brethren in Christ. You could have made certain decisions in your life that you could become an atheist or become a member of some other man-made churches in the, in the denominational world, isn't it? But the fact of the matter is today, we are here. And that shows how good God has been to us by giving us the opportunity of learning His true plan of salvation and be added to His church. So when, as we look back to our past and consider ourselves today, where we are now at the present, does it not teach us something about how good God is? Does it not, shouldn't it spur us to become grateful to God? Grateful for our past? It's because of what happened in the past that has brought us here we should be, always be thankful for that as we look at the present in view of our past. Lamentations 3 is my favorite passage there. At, uh, Lamentations 3 uh, verses 18 down to 24 where it says this. Uh, Jeremiah the prophet said this, And I said, My strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. Remember my affliction and roaming, the wormwood and the gall. My soul still remembers and sings within me. This thing I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I have hope in Him. This is from where we get the song from. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. So this is where the verse comes from. Jeremiah the prophet struggled. You know, as he remembered the past, the wrongs of the kingdom of Judah, the people of Judah, that led them into the Babylonian captivity, uh, you know, that he, dwelt, he kept on dwelling on the past. He was, he was very depressed about his present situation. They were in Babylon, in captivity, away from Jerusalem, their homeland. So he felt lost. This is where the, Jeremiah said that, I'm depressed every morning when I get up. I felt lost because of what, they, what my people have done in the past. So he kept on dwelling on that. And then suddenly Jeremiah says that, then this came to my mind. He said, suddenly I remembered something that gave me hope. He said that, well, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassion fail not. So Jeremiah is saying that, hey, suddenly I realized that, well, as I look at the past, yes, there was a lot of regrets, but then well, as I'm sitting here this morning thinking, hey, I'm, I'm still all right, isn't it? You know, I've got my food, I've got my shelter, I'm, I'm healthy, I'm mobile, moving around. God has been good. And he said that because of this, I have hope. And every morning when I wake up in the morning, and when I wake up in the morning, I see that the, the mercies of God never fails. 
and therefore I have hope in Him. So, brethren, when you look in the past with regrets, yes, but don't dwell on that. Every morning when we open our eyes and look at the present, always remember, God is good. It's because of the mercies of God, His compassions that never fail. That's why we are here today. So, the genealogy of, of Jesus tells us about the past, it also reminds us of the present. That we should be always be grateful instead of mourning and complaining every morning. God is good. Let us always remember that. And our final lesson is this. The, the Lord's genealogy also teaches us about our future. When you look at the, the, the genealogy itself, there's a lot of history behind it. And then it also came to Jesus Christ. And then it went on the life of ministry of Jesus. And it went on to show us the fulfillment of God's promises in Christ that brought the salvation to humankind. So it shows, you see, that God has never failed at any stage in the genealogy of Jesus and onwards. Yeah? He, he has been faithful. And He kept all His promises. So today is the same with us. We look back in our past. Our past may have been very rotten and miserable and terrible. But hey, today God is good with us. Yeah, we should be grateful and thankful and rejoice today. And what about tomorrow? What about our future? This is where when you look at the scriptures, when you see how God has fulfilled the promises that He made in Christ, we can be sure that God is going to be faithful and He will keep His promise for us in the future. And therefore, that we have a good future, a great future. No matter how bad life is now, the future is always great. Because one day, no matter what happens, if we keep our faith and hold our, our faith in God, we steadfast in Him, even if we were to die of COVID tomorrow, we will meet God one day in heaven. And that is the future that we have. And every reason for us, when we look at the genealogy of Jesus, look at how faithful God is, how good God is, there should be no reason for us to complain about things, wallow in the past, or mourn about the future, or worry about, uh, moan about the present and worry about the future. Because why? God has everything covered up for us. You know that uh, had we made one decision that was different in the past, we won't be here today. We're here today because God is good for us. So therefore, let us not lose heart, no matter how difficult life is. Okay, because the, the, this part of our present will become part of our history very shortly, isn't it? In the next second. So I want us to encourage us to always look back to your past, not to wallow in the past in sorrows, but to use it to drive yourself forward. Yeah? From the past, look at the mighty hand of God that has brought you to here, to the present time, that will give you the confidence for the future. And remain faithful and confident of what is going to come, come ahead of us. So brethren, as I end here, remember this. The genealogy of Jesus is just not about history. It is about the present and it is about the glory to come for us all. Thank you. <laughs>